beautiful Olivia. I've had to um, find a competent uh, reader. Not many of you read well, so I was, you know, my options were very small. But uh, I was able to find Olivia who's going to uh, read out our uh, reading for the day. You can put, your, put it on there if you want. Okay. So you can follow along or open your Bibles. I'll be reading from Genesis 11, verse 27, to Genesis 12, verse 9. This is the account of Terah's family. Terah was the father of Abram, Nahor, and Haran, and Haran was the father of Lot. But Haran died in Ur of the Chaldeans, the land of his birth, while his father, Terah, was still living. Meanwhile, Abram and Nahor both married. The name of Abram's wife was Sarai, and the name of Nahor's wife was Milcah. But Sarai was unable to become pregnant and had no children. One day, Terah took his son Abram, his daughter-in-law Sarai, and his grandson Lot, and moved away from Ur of the Chaldeans. He was headed for the land of Canaan, but they stopped in Haran and settled there. Terah lived for 205 years and died while still in Haran. The Lord had said to Abram, leave your native country, your relatives and your father's family and go to the land that I will show you. I will make you into a great nation. I will bless you and make you famous and you will be a blessing to others. I will bless those who bless you and curse those who treat you with contempt. All the families on earth will be blessed through you. So Abram departed as the Lord had instructed and Lot went with him. Abram was 75 years old when he left Haran. He took his wife, Sarai, his nephew, Lot, and all his wealth, his livestock, and all the people he had taken into his household at Haran, and headed for the land of Canaan. When they arrived in Canaan, Abram travelled through the land as far as Shechem. There he set up camp beside the Oak of Moreh. At that time, the area was inhabited by Canaanites. Then the Lord appeared to Abram and said, I will give this land to your descendants. And Abram built an altar there and dedicated it to the Lord, who had appeared to him. After that, Abram travelled south and set up camp in the hill country, with Bethel to the west and Ai to the east. There he built another altar and dedicated it to the Lord, and he worshipped the Lord. Then Abram continued travelling south by stages towards the Negev. Much. Can we give her a round of applause? There was a few hard words in there, and she did very well. Some names and places, and they're always difficult. So, um, so if you uh, are going to read through Genesis with us over the next few weeks, and uh, you want to look at these passages well, I encourage you to look in the New Living Translation or follow in the New Living Translation. So, uh, I'm going to do the whole sermon series from the New Living Translation rather than. Uh, the NIV, which I generally uh, use. And we're going to look at the life of Abraham because he's known as the original believer. Everyone say the original believer. The original believer. So as Christians, if you're a Christian, we often call ourselves believers because we have faith. Abraham's the original believer, the original man of faith. So who better than to look at his life in order to get a sense of the faith journey that we all go on? And each week we're going to look at a test a trial, uh, a challenge that Abraham had to go through in his journey of 
faith that he was on. And I wanted to use the New Living Translation because it's growing in popularity and it's a little bit easier English to understand uh, than some of the other translations. Now, about six weeks ago, I was very vulnerable with you all. I laid out my soul, I shared my heart, I bared my emotion about my soccer career. And the ending of my soccer career and that I couldn't, and well, I struggled and maybe couldn't embrace my limitations of becoming an old man and being unable to run around the soccer field anymore. And since that time, many of you have continued to stick in the knife, <laughs> make fun of me, poke at me, call me old, point out these little receding bits here that I try to cover over with my hairstyle. It's difficult to embrace limitations. And today's a little bit similar. I'm going to talk to you about detaching. So letting go of things, relinquishing things. And this is hard, isn't it? It's hard to let go of things. Let me use a really simple, non-theological, really easy example. Have you ever had to break up with a hairdresser or a dentist or a physio or something like that? Even to let go of your dentist can be difficult. I remember... Uh, years and years ago, my good mate of mine started his own hairdressing salon. And so I had to leave this beautiful blonde girl named Kat that I used to go and see in Frankston. And I didn't do it very well. I didn't end the relationship well. I did what, and I'm sure you've never done this before. But I had this great hairdresser. And I just kind of left without saying anything. I had my last haircut. I knew I was never going to see her again. I never said that my mate started a salon. I'm going to go see him now. And I just kind of left. It wasn't a good ending. Didn't end it well. It wasn't very respectful. It wasn't very honest. But anyway, it's only a hairdresser. So I went to my mate, and uh, he's a great hairdresser, and I wanted to support his business. And uh, his business started to grow and was doing really well. And so a couple of years later, he started employing new hairdressers. <laughs> so I rocked up for my haircut one day, and guess who was there? Cat. He'd employed my old hairdresser, and I had to walk through the shame of explaining why I left her for this new hairdresser, and how I was sorry, and I didn't end things well, and, but I struggle with you know, my limitations and detaching well, and it was, it was all very, very embarrassing. Now, we have much more important things in life that we have to let go of than hairdressers and dentists and physios, but it's not easy to let go of things, and it's not easy to detach ourselves from one season of life and move to the next season of life. I don't know if you've noticed, but humans hate change. We like predictability. We like things as the way they are. We don't really like doing faith. We have to believe in the unknown. Where we have to look to the future. And so it can be difficult to leave what's familiar. People like to stay in familiar even if it's hurting them, even if it's not good for them, even if it's unhealthy, because it's better the devil I know. It's better the devil I know than the devil I don't. But this is the thing with God. He's always, like with Abram, he's always calling us on to something new in him, a new chapter, a new beginning, a new season. And this is where the faith journey begins. As we just heard from Lauren, what, what a fantastic testimony. There was things that she had to end and detach from in order to become a follower of Jesus. If you've made a commitment to follow Jesus, you made a commitment to not follow something else. If you made a commitment to put your faith in God, you've also made a commitment to not put your faith in the things of this world and in human beings and to not put your faith ultimately in your own strength, but to put your faith in God's strength. 
This is the detachment test, and it's difficult, but it's a key part of the faith journey. You know, our faith is tested every day. I've seen as a pastor now uh, for, how long have I been a pastor for? About 15, 16 years since I was 25 and I turned 40 this year. So 15 years as a pastor, I have never seen such a dramatic crisis of faith in the church. The crisis of faith that's occurring now in the church post-COVID and the lockdowns and everything is just enormous. All across the world, Christians are deconverting, having deconstructions of faith where they're pulling their faith apart. Uh, People are leaving the church in droves. People are not sure what to follow, what to believe, who to trust, what's the right way to live. And God has fallen into that category. People aren't sure if they can trust God anymore. People look at pastors or look at churches and go, oh, they're not perfect, so maybe God isn't real. And people's faith is at an all-time place of fragility and vulnerability and difficulty. And our faith is being tested like never before. What do we believe in? What do you trust in? Who do you put your faith in? You know, people who don't believe in God have faith as well. Everybody has faith. Everybody puts their trust in something. You're either going to put it in God, you're even going to put it in some other God or religion, you're either going to put it in yourself and your strength and trust in yourself, or you're going to put your faith and trust in a person, maybe a partner, maybe lots of parents put their faith in their children. I see this every day. I'm going to put my faith in my child and I'm going to worship them and I'm going to raise them and they're going to have everything I didn't have and become everything that I want them to be. Oh, that's a dangerous path to walk. But you're going to put your faith in something. Everyone invests their faith in something or somebody. God comes to Abraham in Genesis 12 and says, put your faith in my faithfulness. That's the question. That's the call that goes out to all of us. Put your faith in my faithfulness, says God. He alone is perfect when it comes to faith. He is faithful every time. He is true every time. He cannot lie. And he offers us, put your trust, put your faith. You know, invest it somewhere. Put it in me who's right every single time. And that's the journey of faith as we journey through life to put our trust truly in God. So the book of Genesis is where we find this story of Abram. And I want to explain the context of this to you a little bit so that as we go through this faith journey series that we understand the book of Genesis that we're reading from. Because the book of Genesis has been under a lot of uh, attack or pressure or controversy uh, over the last 20 to 25 years. For centuries and centuries and centuries, Genesis was generally believed as a literal creation of the universe. And then that's been challenged a lot, especially over the last 20 years. Is it literal? Is it not literal? Is it literal truth? Is it mythology? And sometimes mythology is truer than truth. And there's a lot of different thoughts around it. There's a lot of different ideas around it. So I want to explain to you a little bit about the book of Genesis to give us a good picture. This little grab here is from a a, a Bible project video, but it actually explains the book of Genesis really well in, in a nutshell. So you've got the first half of Genesis, or the first part, if you like, which is Genesis chapter 1 to 11. And then you've got the second part of Genesis, which is Genesis chapter 12 to 50. And see the little link in the middle there? 
That's God's promise to Abram that we're going to talk about today. It connects the two parts of Genesis, but each of them are very, very different. So Genesis 1 to 11 is primordial or prehistoric. So it's before time. It's before history was ever recorded. So when it happened or when it didn't happen or if it happened or or if it's literal or not literal, nobody really knows. The thing we know is no one was there. No one was there taking notes as it happened. It's primordial. It's prehistoric. And in Genesis chapter 1 and chapter 2, we get two creation stories. So we got one creation story, which is your seven-day creation account, and then you get your second creation story, which kind of looks like it happens all in one day, and man is created first, not created on the sixth day. And it's a different creation story. But the message is God created the world through his word. He spoke it into being, let there be light. And so it was. The thing that's important to us as humans is this is where the first humans come into the picture. They're created and they're put in the Garden of Eden. Their names are Adam and Eve. Okay, and they're put in the garden at that point, and it's perfect. They have this place, they have this land, they have this home, it's called the Garden of Eden. They have this promise from God, he says, be fruitful and multiply, have children, spread across the earth, everything you touch is going to turn to gold, I've blessed you. They have this partnership, Adam and Eve are partnered with God himself, they're friends, they hang out every day, they talk to each other. It's the way It should be. But then this snake appears in Genesis 3. This tempter, this liar, this deceiver comes and offers them a great offer, an offer they can't refuse. Oddly, the offer that the enemy, if you like, or the deceiver, the great tempter offers them, he offers them what they've already got. God has created them as free, autonomous individuals in a healthy father-son, father-daughter type relationship with him. The snake offers them freedom and autonomy and expression and life and everything they want for the same thing, but without God. So you can be like God, you can have all the things God has, but you don't have to kind of answer to him. Let's get rid of this power structure and this hierarchy and this authority and this stuff. You can do it on your own. And sadly, Adam and Eve, just like you and me would have done, we grasp for pleasure and we can do it without God and we can have freedom without Him. And they take of the apple and they sin against God. They rebel against God. This creates... A curse, death, darkness enters the world. And the world is kind of like it is now, full of pain, full of suffering, full of disappointment, full of letdowns. We hurt ourselves, we hurt others, we struggle every day to keep our head above water, to try and stay mentally healthy, to try and keep, keep our marriage moving forward, to try and have a job and make some money and create a home and pay some bills. And it's a difficult, difficult life. We live under a curse. All the time, because of our rebellion as humanity, we rebelled against God's good gifts. The world is left in ruin. And this really climaxes, if you remember the story in Genesis chapter 11. It's the last story of this primordial section. It's about the Tower of Babel. 
And man has said, hey, let's build ourselves a giant tower into the sky so that we can be famous, that all the people of the world will know who we are. We will have a, na- a great name. We will be famous. We will be like God. And God's heart breaks at his creation, the people he's created, their rebellion their willingness to do it their own way, their willingness to hurt, to murder, to kill, to destroy, to get one up on each other. And ultimately, their rebellion against him to be great without God. And so God confuses their languages. And that's what Babel means. It means confusion. Babel becomes Babylon, and Babylon is the place of confusion. And the world is dark. The peoples are spread all across the earth. Their languages are confused. It's a dark time, a dark season. It's a godless season, a faithless time across the globe. But into this darkness, God speaks to one man. And this is the link between Genesis 1 to 11. If we can have the next image. Genesis 1 to 11. No, just back on. Genesis 1, 11 to 12, 50. This is the link. God speaks again into the darkness. God speaks again into the sin and the ruin and the pain and everything that's not right. That's the link there. And in Genesis 12, he talks to Abram and he says, I'm going to start a new family. And this is what chapters 12 to 50 are. You might remember the story. I'm going to go a bit deeper into it today. But for now, I just want to give you a quick overview of chapters 12 to 50. God speaks to one man, one person, and essentially says to him, I am going to start over again, a new beginning, a new beginning with you and with your family. Now, this story is quite famous because Abram and his wife, Sarai, don't have any children and she's barren. She can't have children. So this is super like God, hey? This is how God tends to work. He comes and makes a promise. He comes and gives a prophecy. He comes and says something great about the future. But in the natural, it's always like, yeah, but God, it's impossible. We're barren. We have no children. By the time they have a child, and we're going to hear about this during the series, they're already 90 and 100 years old, Abram and his wife, Sarai. Or they become Abraham and Sarah. But the point is God is going to start with a new family. Abraham eventually does have a son, Isaac. And he eventually has two sons, Jacob and Esau. And they hate each other. And then Jacob goes on. He has 12 sons. They become the 12 tribes of Israel. And then those 12 tribes of Israel have many, many sons and daughters and eventually become the Israelites, the nation of Israel, the Jewish people. And that's the end of the book of Genesis. There's this huge group of people, but they're stuck in Egypt and they're stuck in slavery. And that's where the story goes into Exodus and the story about releasing the people of God from their captivity in Egypt. What God says to Abraham is a promise. A promise. So you can't put your faith in nothing. So God gives a promise in order that we can put our trust in him. And this promise outworks time and time again. Eventually, this promise results in the nation of Israel becoming the most powerful nation in all the earth. 
And King David and King Solomon, they rule over this nation of Israel, which was one of the superpowers in all of the earth. But again, the same old story continues over and over and over. Humanity, even King David, even God's people, the people of Israel, rebel against God. And eventually, the nation of Israel goes into captivity again. Just like the captivity in Egypt, centuries and centuries later, they go into captivity again. Babylon takes them over. The Medes and the Persians rule over them. The Greeks eventually rule over them. And then the Romans eventually rule over them. So they're under slavery for centuries and centuries and centuries until God's faithfulness comes through again and Jesus Christ comes in that era when the Romans are ruling over the Jewish people. He comes as the son of Abraham. He comes, they call him the son of David. He comes as the chosen, promised son of the Messiah, God's ultimate faithfulness. And then from there, from Jesus, the message of the gospel goes out, not only now to the Jews to be the faithful people of God, but it goes out to all people and all nations, that if you put your faith in Jesus Christ, whether you're Jew or Greek, whether you're Aussie or American, whether you're young or old, whether you know stuff about the Bible, you know nothing about the Bible, the call, just like it went to Abraham, now goes out to all people, but it's the same call. Put your faith in God through Jesus Christ. Faith in Jesus Christ is faith in God. You can trust in God's faithfulness. And this is why we're going to follow the story of Abraham the whole way through. Let's go back to Genesis 12 and verse 1 and read it out again. Have we got that slide there? The Lord said to Abram, leave your native country, your relatives, and your father's family, and go to the land that I'll show you, and I'll make you into a great nation. I'll bless you and make you famous, and you will be a blessing to others. I'll bless those who bless you and curse those who treat you with contempt. All the families on earth will be blessed through you. So Abram departed as the Lord had instructed. There's a few practical things that I want to share with you today about detachment. And then I'd really love to open up the prayer line this morning because I think that there's an amazing opportunity in these next few weeks for us to go on this faith journey. Whether for you it's entering a journey of faith, maybe it's for the first time putting your faith in Jesus. Maybe it's returning to a place of, man, I've got lost, I've drifted, I've, I need to get back to it. I trust you, Lord God, you are faithful and I'm going to walk this path. Maybe your journey of faith has drifted here or drifted there. Maybe it's got stagnant, stuck some hurt, some pain, some disappointment, something went wrong. We get stuck on the faith journey. But today's an opportunity to get unstuck. So I really want to encourage you in this next bit before we finish, just to open your heart up to what God might be saying to you today. Because we're going to stay here for a few weeks and look at faith and faithfulness and trust and all of these different things. Detachment must come before attachment. God's promise to Abram required him to detach from something. In order for Abraham to take up the promises of God, he had to let go. You only have one thing in your hand at a time. Abraham was attached. He was attached to his family. 
his father Terah. He had his own wife, but he was still living under his father's covering. His father had been journeying from Ur of the Chaldeans, but it got stuck and it stopped in Haran and wasn't able to go on any further. That wasn't the place he intended to go. If you, if, you, if you follow Olivia, he was intending to go to Canaan, but he got stuck in Haran. There's a death in the family. The older brother died. So there's pain. There's hurt. There's grief. There's a death, a premature death in the family. Maybe that's why terror stopped. Maybe that's why Abraham never launched out on his own. There's too much pain in the family. We all have stuff that goes on in our family we need to detach from. We have family politics. We have mothers-in-law who are too involved, fathers-in-law who are not involved enough. We have all kinds of issues. We all have family problems. We all have family politics. And interestingly, for the man of faith, the original believer, family was an issue that he had to detach from in order to attach to the promise of God. You can't hold the promise of God and hold on to your junk. That's the story if I just cut to the chase right here. You can't put your faith in God and attach to Him and have a beautiful, healthy, thriving journey with God following Jesus while you're still attached. So hurt, pain, junk, sin, all this stuff going on. God wants to deal with the unhealthy attachments and detach you from anything that will block you being a man, a woman of God, a person of faith, a person with their trust in Him. Can we just jump back to the verse here? What you see in the verse is, a, is this is the crux of the promise. This promise takes us from primordial prehistoric history and launches us into God's big story for the universe, starting with one man and one family that would become one nation, that from it would become the Messiah would come from the Jewish people that would then invite in all people to have a relationship with God. This guy's pretty important. His faith in God's faithfulness is pretty important. But God comes to him not with a whole list of things for him to do. This is where we get faith wrong sometimes. God doesn't come with a whole list of commitments that Abram has to make. No, God comes with a big promise of blessing, of fame, of notoriety, of, of, of responsibility, of becoming a great nation, of things that are going to happen even beyond Abram's lifetime. God comes with a huge promise in order to use him for a purpose, for a great purpose. All that's required at the beginning, at the first step, the first step in the faith journey, the beginning of faith journey, the beginning of returning to a journey of faith with God, the first thing that's always going to be required is to let go. You're going to have to let something go. You're going to have to detach from something. You're going to have to let things end. You're just going to have to let the pain, the disappointment, the resentment, the hopes you had that haven't worked out, you just have to let it end or else you will never be able to trust God. The greatest thing that stands in the way of faith in God is faith in self. If you're not putting hope in God, you'll generally put faith in self. Self-faith is selfishness. It's exactly what Adam and Eve did. They put themselves before God. They put their trust in themselves and what the snake was saying to them rather than in God who'd been so good to them. 
Detachment precedes attachment of our faith to the promises of God. Something that's helped me a lot in this area, especially this year, because I've had to let a lot go. I've had to do a lot of crying the last few years. I've had to embrace a lot of pain. Something that's helped me a lot is the prayer of relinquishment. So there's a prayer in the contemplative tradition that's called the prayer of relinquishment. And it's just a way of praying to let things go. And you literally just pray prayers. I'm just letting this go to you, God. Do you have a frustration? (laughs) Do you have things on your mind? The main thing that I hear from my mates is I just can't stop thinking. I try to pray, but I can't stop thinking. I try to spend time with God, I just can't stop thinking. I'm trying to do this with my family, but I've just got responsibilities and to-do lists over here. Pray the prayer of relinquishment. Genuinely let things go to God and calm your mind, calm your heart, calm your soul. You can't calm yourself without prayer. Prayer is the place of peace. Prayer is the place where faith begins. Prayer is the place where you detach. I want this. I need this. I need a breakthrough. I've got a problem. I'm dealing with this. This is difficult. The place of prayer, the first thing we do is we detach from all that so that we can just attach to Him. And then we can go out of the place of prayer into our day with our attachments right. My attachment here is right. My attachments there are wrong, so they've been detached. This is the journey of faith. It's a journey of relinquishment. It's a journey of detachment. It's a journey of letting go so that God can be in control. Who would you rather be in control of your life, him or you? The second thing I want to talk to you about is endings and new beginnings. You know, my ministry as a pastor looked very different in 2019. This church looked very different. I stood up on this stage in 2019 and our tithes were about double what they are now. The amount of people attending our church was probably 50% more. Uh, We had a full-time discipleship course running in the church every year, 15 full-time students, if not more. Lauren referenced it before. We had five, four or five conferences we would run a year. If you were around back then, you probably remember. We had all these things going on. And then at the end of 2019, God said to us, hand the church back over to me. It was this kind of odd, obscure word that came through. We were doing pretty well. We were doing maybe successful on the outside as a church. Things were happening. There was lots of activity, that's for sure. And God gives us this word, hand the church back over to me. So like we usually do as Southern Lights, we did it with all of our heart. We had 40 days of prayer. We were in here for 40 days in a row, giving the church back to God. Little did we know he was taking it back. (laughs) Little did we know we had no idea what we were praying for. And that turned out to be quite a cathartic moment because going on from that time, God really started to deal with some things. We, We had some deep unhealth in our core leadership and God began to clean that up. He began to deal with our hearts. He began to cut away things that that weren't right. We looked okay on the outside, but on the inside, we were in danger. The church was heading towards death. That's how serious it was. But God is so faithful. And God is so gracious. And God meets us in our moments of weakness. And then on top of that, we had two years of COVID and lockdowns. So like every church in Victoria, we lost all momentum. 
We lost everything that was going on. Everything was shut down, wasn't it? Apart from 45-minute, you know, little thing on a Sunday morning, little live stream just to try and help us tick over. And God said to me at that time, he said to me, just stay in the cave, Caleb. Just stay in the cave. And I knew that was a reference to David in the cave of Adullam and the time of running and difficulty and pain. And I just knew that it was not my job to speak up. I knew it was not my job to talk about rights. I knew it was not my job to live out of pain and disappointment. It was just to stay in this cave and be quiet and pray and find God in a challenging time. And as we came out of the lockdowns and the opportunity to begin church came to us again, we just knew that lots of things had ended and they needed to stay ended. And that's really painful to let things that are good end, to let things that seem right not come back when they could. And what God was teaching us is that endings lead to new beginnings. But endings are really difficult. Pruning is really difficult because you've got to let things go. And letting things go requires crying, requires grieving, requires embracing sorrow. You see, maturity, it's on your slide there, maturity expects endings and embraces the grief and the sorrow. I've done a bunch of funerals now as a pastor, and as Aussies, we suck at grieving. People, funerals are, the funerals that we have in Australia are horrendous, horrendously poor. And I'm so sorry because you probably all had loved ones that died. It's not a personal thing, but I'm just saying we really struggle to grieve. We're all stuck and we don't know what to do. We have, sadly, it's not really our fault. Sadly, in our Aussie culture, we just don't have much in the way of ritual. We don't have much in the way of tradition. And with any tradition that we've had, we've kind of killed off and we've stabbed and we've rebelled against because we thought we'd be better without ritual and tradition. But, but, but what happens in our culture then is when you kill off all your tradition, it brings up problems at times of grieving because you don't know what to do. And it's the same with our lives. We, we're very, very poor at letting go because we've seen endings as failure. We've seen chapters that come to a close in our life. We see it as we're not good enough. We didn't perform enough. So we struggle to just let things die. We see death as bad and life as good. When in Christian theology, it's not the way at all. Jesus died on the cross. And it was the greatest day in human history, but nobody knew it. None of us understood. His 12 disciples were scattered because he was dead on a cross and died as a common criminal. But God knew death leads to life and endings are required in order to, for new beginnings. The very chapter of human history was closing in the death of Jesus. Sin and death and pain and depression, it was ended. And Jesus was able to detach himself and let it end and let it go. The disciples couldn't. We struggle with it. But little do we know, resurrection was coming, a new day, a new beginning. If you don't end things right, you won't begin the next thing right. There's issues in your life because you haven't grieved properly when something ended and you're stuck. You're stuck in your heart. 
I got stuck in my heart over the last couple of years many, many times. And the grace of God, I think I'm working it through. Okay, I've needed a lot of help. I've needed a lot of community. I've needed my life group. I've needed counseling. I've needed my wife. I've needed to talk. I've needed to cry. I've needed to change. Lots of different things, but I think I'm getting there. The rate of pastors leaving the church or considering leaving the church is huge. You look at the statistics coming out of America, one in three pastors have left the church in the last two years just because of COVID lockdowns and because of the huge political tension. Congregation members are putting huge pressure on their pastors because of the politics and the divisiveness and disunity in politics. If you don't end well, you don't cry it out, You don't sit with your pain. We hate endings. We avoid pain and sorrow. Again, read the Bible. It's all in there. Jesus was a man of sorrow who was familiar with pain and suffering. At the death of Lazarus, the shortest verse in the whole Bible, John chapter 10, verse 35, Jesus wept. That's the whole verse. Jesus cried when things ended, although he knew a new beginning of Lazarus' life coming back from dead, from dead was coming. God's faithfulness, the third part, and then we're going to begin to finish up. God's faithfulness must come before our faith. And this is the great news of the gospel of Jesus Christ. God was faithful first, and then he asked for faithfulness. Isn't that amazing? You would think as a human being it'd be the other way around. Will you, will you show me? <laughs> will you, you prove yourself and then you'll get the promotion? You show me that you're, good, you're a decent person, you've got good character, and then you know, I'll, 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 I'll engage in the friendship a bit deeper. God, it's different. He has all the rights. He has all the power. He's perfect. He's holy. Yet he comes to Abraham and says, I will prove to you my faithfulness. You will have a promise that is going to give you a partnership with me. It's going to give you a son, Isaac. You're going to have a family. And then I'm going to give you a land. I'm going to give you a promised land where your people will reside in, where the Jewish people will have their own nation. And then after all of those phenomenal promises, partnership with God, a son and a family, a land to call your own, a home to call your own, then God says, just, just trust me. That's it. Don't have to do anything. Don't have to jump any bars. Don't have to do anything miraculous. Don't have to ed- be educated any particular way. None of that stuff. Just trust me. That's it. Just put your faith in me. Just pray a little bit. Talk a little bit. Listen to me a little bit. <laughs> Obey me a little bit because I know what's best for you. Just trust me. Let's just, just, just trust me. Just believe in me. Galatians 3 verse 5, I ask you again, does God give you the Holy Spirit and work miracles among you because you obey the law? Of course not. It is because you believe the message you heard about Christ. You see, God isn't asking for you to perform. Ultimately, at the crux of it, the very foundation, he's just asking you to believe the message. Abram believed God and it was credited to him as righteousness. You're asked to believe in Jesus Christ and follow him. That is the right way to live. In the same way, verse 6, Abraham believed God and God counted him as righteous because of his faith. 
The real children of Abraham then are those who put their faith in God. This is the model we're going to look at. This is the journey of Abraham we're going to follow and look at our journey over this series. What's more, the Scriptures look forward to this time when God would make the Gentiles right in His sight because of faith. God proclaimed this good news to Abraham long ago when He said, All the nations of the earth will be blessed through you. That was verse 4, Genesis 12, verse 4. So all who put their faith in Christ share the same blessing received because of his faith. God starts with Abraham. I'm going to give you a family. It becomes a nation. That nation becomes only the first nation because all other nations are invited in because of Jesus Christ. This week, I want to encourage you to read through this passage, Genesis eleven twenty-seven, right through to chapter 12, verse 9. But don't just read it. We heard two great sermons the last two weeks from uh, Pastor Andrew and encourage us, don't read the Bible, study the Bible. Read over it, meditate over it, pray over it. And I want you to have a go at practicing the prayer of relinquishment, just letting things go, detaching from things, looking into your heart this week. Where am I stuck? Because I didn't let something end properly. Maybe it was a marriage Maybe it was a work thing. So many people have pain around friendships and family and things that didn't end well, things that weren't resolved. There's no repentance. We kind of moved on, but it was not right. It wasn't healthy. Maybe we had the opportunity to work it through on our own, but we wouldn't do it. We're in too much pain. And Take this to God this week. Pray through that this week. Pray the prayer of relinquishment. Detachment is often forgiving, is often repenting is often returning back to God. And then in our life groups or, or in your family at home or with your roommates or whatever, you can find someone to have a discussion. There's a few questions there. What is a person's faith journey exactly? Talk about that. Think about that. What do you think it is? What do you think it means to go on a journey of faith? Share one thing you learned from the story of Abraham passing the detachment test. How did Abraham move through this trial? It's a challenge for us, isn't it? But each test boosts our faith. As we go through the test of detaching and attaching to God's promises, it boosts our faith. It builds our trust in God. So what did you learn from that? And and number three, list people or things you need to let go of. You need to end. You need to detach from. So the first one was about praying your own prayer time. But this is if you're in a discussion group. Just share about, well, what's one or two things you need to detach from and need to let go of? Is it a person? Is it a thing? Maybe you've got some ideal, some aspiration in the future, and it keeps coming back to you and messing your life up because you're orientating everything towards some ideal that might never happen, something you want to buy that you might never get, something that you think over there is going to give you life or peace, but it's not happening for you. Just learn to detach from those things and live in today, What did Jesus say in the Sermon on the Mount? Tomorrow has enough worry of its own. Why are we rife with anxiety in our nation? Why is the next generation rife with worry and anxiety? Because we can't obey the guidance of Jesus. Just worry about today. Do not worry about tomorrow. Tomorrow has enough cares of its own. If you live in your to-do list, you live in your worries, you live in your concerns, then you're never going to be able to live fully attached to the promises 
of God. 